Hello and welcome to The Urbanist, Monocle's programme all about the built environment and how to make our cities better places to live in. I'm your host, Andrew Tuck. Coming up... Reconnecting green spaces, creating green corridors through the cities for animals and biodiversity and birds to kind of go through is very important. It is also very important to manage water, uh, stormwater on the site. And so there are a number of kind of key concepts that relate to using nature as infrastructure. This week, we have a mixture of stories from Iceland to Ontario, exploring some of the challenges and innovations taking place in our cities. From a second city showing the big guys how it's done, to Ukrainian mayor vowing to rebuild his city better and stronger. Plus, how is virtual reality helping us to listen to our urban environments before they're built? That's all coming up over the next 30 minutes, right here on The Urbanist, with me, Andrew Tuck. So welcome to The Urbanist. This week we start in Canada's sixth largest city, Mississauga. While this metropolis might not have the same number of cranes on its skyline as neighbouring Toronto, it has actually become a sort of case study for the power of secondary cities when it comes to urban experimentation. This evolving city has been punching above its weight with two transformational master plans along the waterfront that are set to redefine the place. So can secondary cities help shape our urban future? And can they be effective test beds these major master plans. To find out more, Monocle's Carlotta Rebello caught up with Sam Dufault, who is a principal at SVN Architects and Planners. Sam has been working on these projects and exploring the potential of second cities. Carlotta started by asking him to give us a snapshot of Mississauga. Toronto has a lot of kind of satellite cities all around. Mississauga is just on the west of Toronto and grew as a kind of a commuter city, but it has grown quite a lot in the last few years and now almost have 800,000 inhabitants. And so it is a city that is a bit overlooked by a lot of the architects and urbanists and is to a great degree in the kind of shadow of Toronto and for no good reason, we think. And I think we involve in a number of projects there to really help develop that city and the region around it. As you mentioned, you are involved in a few projects over there. And Mississauga has this collection, I guess, of master plan projects going on at the moment. Tell us a bit more about those projects and the ones that uh, SVN has in the city. Just for a bit more context, Mississauga is a, and the region around here is really an urbanism that has been developed around cars as the primary mode of transportation. And Mississauga really kind of grew also with really large road, highways, and a lot of suburbs. And our work precisely is more in areas that are being developed and well connected to public transit and trying to find ways to integrate the local communities into a kind of a higher density housing type and prototype. So we're working on a project, it's right next to a GO station, which is our local regional commuter train. And it is a site that is now kind of a large parking for that GO station and is being redeveloped. And I think we are proposing on this site about 2,000 new units that include also some affordable housing and a whole number of public spaces, community centers that are part of this development for this particular site. 
What's interesting looking at the project on uh, your website is exactly the scale of it as well. You know, this idea of uh, also not only providing those new 2,000-something units that you were talking about, but also the outdoor public plaza, the connection with the public space. How important is it to, you know, bring in a sense of community when really designing such a large-scale part of a city? Yeah, working at such a large scale really involves that you always need to think about the infrastructure that supports the community, right? So transportation, public spaces, community spaces, and so on. So there is already an existing community that will kind of remain around the site in this area, this neighborhood called Cooksville, and we will just bring more people. But I think thinking of how it could be an infrastructure for the city, I think that's the key. And it goes well beyond just big buildings and a lot of housing, right? So in this particular project, I think we've carved out a big public space in the middle of the park, in a way a bit sheltered from the very traffic intensive road that's around the site, to create a bit of a calm and green heart at the center of that site that is quite large. Yes, and exactly also to, you know, combat that urban uh, heat island effect that we know so many areas are feeling it. And it's through these uh, new developments and new initiatives that we can try to reduce some of those temperatures, bring them down and actually increase tree canopy, etc., which I believe is also a big part here of your project. Yeah, of course, and reconnecting green spaces, creating green corridors through the cities for animals and biodiversity and birds to kind of go through is very important. It is also very important to manage water, uh, stormwater on the site. And so there are a number of kind of key concepts that relate to using nature as infrastructure in that project that are very important. And I think we've also really looked at how, even though it is not an immense park, how in a relatively small footprint, we can really maximize and supercharge the amount of biodiversity and nature that can exist on the site. Now, a city like Mississauga, one of the particularities is that, as with many secondary cities, they sit close to another large city. And I wonder here, when you think about the project and who will be the people moving into these units and living in this project, are you hoping to get people to leave Toronto to go and live here or to create and attract a whole different type of resident that will call Mississauga their home? I think primarily we're trying to convince people that it would be better to move there than live in a very far-flung suburb and being able to be really well connected to public transit to then commute to Toronto via train where there's also a new streetcar and convince people that this kind of 15-minute city concept where you also bring a lot of amenities all around you without using your car is really what needs to happen in areas like Mississauga. I think that's very important. Now, we see, as mentioned, like a lot of these places that end up sitting next to a country's largest city where, you know, development is perhaps a bit quicker and easier to get over the line. But do you think this might be the main advantage of second cities and perhaps one that should be exploited, this uh, using a second city as a testbed for urban innovation? Yeah, for sure. And I think bringing design to the secondary cities, I think this is really what's missing. And this is where there is a really big opportunity because these secondary cities are the ones that are the most rapidly changing nowadays. And the growth in our region is actually primarily concentrated in these secondary cities, not necessarily Toronto. And so that's why it's also very important to invest in these areas because they are the ones that are changing the most rapidly. And do you think that, you know, ideas that are trialed and tested in a second city can be transferred on to, you know, their bigger counterparts, let's put it that way? 
Yeah, of course. In a way, these secondary cities, they are very welcoming to also new immigrants, which is really what is triggering that growth in population in Ontario. And I think the this wealth of different communities that exist there should really form a new kind of social contract for places, even like in Toronto, that tend to be more historically dominated by the, the kind of white immigrants who came over time. So I, I think there is really a great dynamic of communities of different groups there. And it's really an amazing place to test new ways of living together. Do you think then that there are lessons that other second cities can learn from Mississauga? Yeah, sure. In a way, Mississauga is a kind of um, cautionary tale of what can happen if you prioritize suburban development, right, when it grows and grows endlessly. So a lot of other secondary cities are not that big yet, but I think they could take use of the kind of consequence of certain planning and urbanism that was done in Mississauga in the last 20 years and the type of development that existed and and really realize that it is a bit of a dead end. And I think there are a lot of areas in Mississauga where other type of development are being prioritized around mass transit. And I think investing in this for a lot of the other areas is really important as well. It's not something that is being considered always. Sam Dufault, principal at SVN Architects and planners there. And he was in conversation with Monocle's Carlotta Rabello. This is The Urbanist. Now, the staggering task of rebuilding Ukraine continues to take centre stage as the war rattles on. But despite all odds, this is a task still filled with some optimism. The Ukrainian Chamber of Commerce refers to it as the world's largest construction site, as mayors of besieged Ukrainian cities use the moment to reshape infrastructure and rebuild their cities for the better. Alexander Senkovich is the mayor of Mykolaiv, who saw his city under siege by Russian military forces in February and March of 2022. Earlier, he met up with Monocle's Tom Webb to discuss what Ukrainian cities need in order to rebuild and also looked at the significance of its mayors continuing to attend international conferences. Let's have a listen. What is the session that you will be attending today? The session uh, is about the renovation of Ukraine after the war. So from emergency needs to development of our cities, uh, local communities, because we think that we need to build Ukraine from the bottom, I mean from the lowest level of uh, local governments, local city councils. We will share our experience on, on how we passed this war, I mean, how we defended our communities and what we do now and what we plan to do in future after uh, this war will end. And what has your experience been? The experience is really hard, you know, for people who were civilians and planned uh, development of their territories for the future, like sustainable development and green technologies, green uh, heating, green electricity. We started to be defenders of our city. We built fortifications, we built different, let's say, we helped our army to defend our city and our country. And then we moved our enemy back and it helped us uh, to create new divisions of army and uh, be more, you know, to be more strong and to regroup and to get more force to move forward and push Russians behind her soul. So you are in a stronghold at the moment. Are you now in a position to rebuild? 
Yes, uh, Mikolaev has uh, a really good experience in survival because our city was eight months without drinking water at all because Russians ruined our pipes that helped us to bring fresh water from Dnipro River uh, near Kherson to the city of Mikolaev. Before the war, we pumped 120,000 cubic meters per day to the city of Mikolaev. Then, after the ruin of the pump station and those pipes, we had eight months of lack of drinking water. So we made boreholes, we took water under the ground, and we shared it, we distributed it to people. Today, we resolved this problem with water. We are resolving problems with electricity and we are building a new plan of renovation. We started with the general plan, the master plan of the city, which will be the base of our renovation plan. And moreover, we don't want to just to rebuild those ruined objects ruined by the war, but we want to make it better. Instead, let's say, of two old schools to build one modern school and do some, you know, roads connected with those children who need education. So it will be like build back better rule that we plan to use on, on the renovation. So as soon as this war happens, we need to prepare all the documentations, all the plans, all the bureaucracy procedures to start a rebuild and renovate Ukraine after the end of the war. The scars of war are still being discovered in Mykolaiv, Russian torture chambers. What has the experience of warfare been like for the city? You know, uh, every time when you think that it's hard, it is hard for you to live or you have really big problems, start to think about those cities that, or about those people who have bigger problems, who are now under shelling, everyday shelling, because Mykolaiv, before the liberation of her son, was under everyday shelling. And let's say we had only 46 days without shellings. All other days we were bombarded by Russians, missiles, cluster bombs and everything. So today we are in a silent mode. We have time to get all those ruins out of the city, to renovate some buildings, houses, private houses, and to launch water, heating and electricity. So we work on that, on survival, but we already think about development. For the cities that are still under attack, is the West doing enough? Is Germany doing enough? You know, sometimes uh, people ask me why our army goes so slow forward. But I usually say that we need to save as many people as we can because our Western partners can provide help us with the armory, with the weapon, with the tanks and everything, but no one will fight instead of us. So we need to save our lives, uh, lives of our soldiers, and for sure we need help of all the Western world because we are fighting now not with Russia. It's another war with, between Russia and Ukraine. This is a war between uh, Russian world and Western civilization. So you remember that the World War II, when everyone had silence when Hitler started to occupy different territories. And we see it grew to the World War II. So today, world incorporation stops this World War III, and Ukraine is on front line. Finally, there is a session on energy transformation in Ukraine. You spoke about pipelines being destroyed. In Mykolaiv, what is the situation with energy? 
To be honest, we experience problems with electricity, but they are less than in other parts of Ukraine because there is a nuclear station near us that provides us with electricity. But anyway, let's say we have like uh, uh, blackouts on two on four to switch off uh, four hours with electricity. And we kind of already familiar with the situation. Uh, but another problem that our enterprises don't work because of these problems. And this is the next challenge that we have is to launch all the productions and to get investments to make them bigger for people who will return to have workplaces. We don't want I think Ukrainians, for sure, make class citizens. We don't want to be those poor guys who will always ask for money. Please help us. Please. We want to be partners who wants to grow their production, who want to get not just you know grants, money for free, but the investments that we are ready to turn back and to help businesses, let's say Western businesses, to earn money in Ukraine. Alexander Senkovich the mayor of Mykolaiv there, and he was in conversation with Monocle's Tom Webb. The sound within a building can directly impact your health, especially when you consider the impact of excess noise in apartment buildings, offices, hospitals or even schools. Architectural acoustics company Treble is applying new virtual reality technology to concert halls, lecture theatres, wine cellars and even football stadiums, to show how sound within the finished form will impact users and their experiences. Well, to tell us more, Andy Jones sent us this report. It's oh so quiet. Shh, shh. It's oh so still. So peaceful until Iceland is full of unique sounds. Some of them natural, like the sound of lava sizzling as it reaches the Earth's surface. Others in Reykjavik are a little bit more man-made. My name is Black Elf. And I work at the Icelandic Punk Museum and uh, sing in a band called Lake Svifarlekans. Here we go. But sometimes you want to keep all of those great noises outside and create a relaxing nirvana inside. Trying to control sounds in architectural design are Treble, a new virtual reality technology which can simulate how a building will sound before it's even built. My name is Finner Pint and I am the CEO and one of the founders of Treble Technologies. Treble is a software that integrates with the design tools that architects and engineers use, which enables then people, these people, architects and engineers and other stakeholders in the building design process, to analyze how things are going to sound, to be able to hear and experience how their designs are going to sound, and to be able to test different designs and really design soundscapes. The technology allows you to walk around the interior of your structure at the earliest stage so you can understand exactly what the lived experience will be like once you add residents, colleagues, a local freeway, a noisy traffic junction, or even a class of school children. 
For instance, treble was used when designers wanted to expand the late modernist town hall in Uppsala, Sweden to include a 1500 meter square courtyard for the purposes of events and live music. But what may look good for users doesn't necessarily sound good, particularly if you're in an office next door to that courtyard. So architects and engineers using treble were able to add various sounds to see how noise bounced off the walls and the decorative glass dome roof of the courtyard. They could add the sound of large groups moving through the courtyard and a little live music. All while allowing designers and stakeholders through the use of a VR headset to feel the impact of any sound from any corner of the design before it was built. I don't think anyone has been designing cities or buildings in cities with kind of sound being a design driver. Uh, it's just been designed, thinking about the aesthetics, thinking about different functionality, but not about the sound. The sound environment is good if you kind of don't notice it. You know what I mean? You notice when it's bad and then people complain, but if it's good, then just people kind of don't notice it. So that's kind of a measure of a good design. People often, when they think about acoustics and buildings, they think about things like concert halls and so on. I've certainly been to concert halls that don't sound great. But actually, you know, when you ask a question like this, I think about the kindergartens I've been into, which just sounded terrible. You know, think about being a kindergarten teacher. You're in there all day, every day, and just your stress levels and your happiness as an employee is just severely affected by the acoustic environment. And that's kind of really what drives me, you know, to, to fix these kind of regular types of buildings. There's been a ton of research done throughout the years that shows very clearly and unequivocally that sound has a massive impact on our health and well-being and productivity and so on. In office buildings, you know, research shows that people perform better, they're more productive, their stress levels are lower when the sound environment is positive and good. In schools, you know, research shows that kids, they learn faster, they perform better at, on tests, they kind of judge their peers and their teachers more positively when, when the sound environment is uh, good. In hospitals, people heal faster, they use less pain medication. But what do architects themselves say about applying acoustic technology in an already difficult build? My name is Jakob Sturman Andersen. I'm a partner at Henning Larsen Architects in Copenhagen. Acoustics go very much often wrong. Uh, it comes in very, very late in the design process. Um, it's often something you add after you have designed the building. You need to add acoustic absorption of the walls and you, the ceilings. And it's something that architects often hate uh, because it's like take, they, they want a very honest architect. They want the honest architect to be visible and like... And then the acoustic engineers comes in and they plaster the whole uh, room with acoustic absorption and looks terrible, the architect things. So I think it's going very much often wrong because it's not integrated in the design process. It's not understood by architects. Um, a perception of acoustic engineer from the architects is like often an old grey hair guy comes in with a lot of numbers and spreadsheets and talks about noise and uh, something bad and they need to add things and the extra cost. Jakob and his Henning Larsen team were commissioned to redesign the Carl H. Lindner College of Business at the University of Cincinnati. With higher education being more expensive than ever, the campus's 44,000 students expect to hear every word of every lecture said in the new hall. 
Jakob applied treble to the planned design, not just to reduce negative noise like echoes or outside distractions, but also harness positive sounds to improve shared spaces. We took the, the, the dean and the lecturers and the students into the VR universe and designed together with them. I think that is also the new thing here. You can actually bring the end users into the design process in a whole new way. So it's not like we are designing that and then you, you have to believe that it's going to work in the end, but you can bring them in and you can have their opinion of, of what is the building look like, but also how does the building sound uh, before you actually start building. Many buildings in the university use carpet to control the acoustics of a room. Also, what better way to say you're in the University of Cincinnati than a floor telling you so? The dean of the university was very keen to keep it that way. But unfortunately, this is what Treble showed that carpeted lecture hall would sound like. Marketing is the process of promoting and selling products or services to customers. It involves a wide range of activities, including... The architects also showed what would happen if you brought some Scandinavian flair to the new building with wooden floors to control the acoustics in a different way. Marketing is the process of promoting and selling products or services to customers. It involves a wide range of activities, including market research. And then we brought the, the dean of the school into the VR with the headset on and the earphone. And then he went into the first room, heard a lecture, and then he walked virtually into another room and heard a lecture and he actually came out of the virtual environment and said that I actually like the, the last one better, the Scandinavian way. In Treble's Reykjavik headquarters, there are noise-cancelling panels, sound mufflers and acoustic floors and ceilings. It's the kind of office where you could tell a colleague a secret and the boss couldn't possibly overhear. Or down in the kitchen, if you dropped a colleague's precious favourite mug, only you would know about the crime. But good sound isn't necessarily about shutting everything out. And I think it's also a very good point, Jakob, that you make, you know, that it's not just about reducing noise uh, or or dampening sound you know sound it can be a very positive thing you know and it can be very stimulating that's something that's just been impossible to design up until now it's like positive sounds you know and a soundscape that's stimulating and pleasant and so on the definition of noise is unwanted sound uh, so it doesn't really have to be super loud or anything it's just unwanted sound you can try to get rid of the unwanted sounds and then stimulate and enhance the, the wanted sound. And you can do that either naturally or almost artificially. But does good sound in design have to come with an expensive price tag? Well, if it's in, integrated into the design in the early stages, then it's, it can even be less expensive. Uh, you, like we were talking about earlier, you, know, you can actually end up reducing materials uh, in the building if you just take this design parameter into consideration in the early stages. I don't know. Yeah, I think that, uh, you're super right, Finn. I think that is actually going the other way, that we can get like less materials into our building and uh, less cost, upfront cost, because we can simulate it upfront and we know exactly what kind of materials we need and how much we need in it and where to place it. Treble's acoustic technology can also be useful in other industries. Now you can design the soundscape of a car virtually. You know, before you would have to build the physical prototype of the car and, you know, test, okay, how does it sound? How does the engine sound coming through? What if I put the speakers here? Now you can, in simulation and in VR, you can just experience how the sound, how the car is going to sound, 
research has again kind of shown that people actually judge the quality of a car very much by the sort of sound aspect of it. For example, just the good old closing the door sound, you know, if you get this kind of thump sound, then it's like, ah, this is a quality car. But if you get the then it's a crap car, you know. <laughs> so yeah, being able to design that with simulation is, is a good example. My thanks there to Andy Jones for that report. Well, that's all for this week's episode of The Urbanist. For more from the world of urbanism, sign up to the podcast to get new episodes every week and subscribe to Monocle magazine. And you can do that at monocle.com. Today's show was produced by Carlos Rabello and David Stevens. And David also edited the show. And to play you out this week, well, here's Makina with City. Thank you for listening, City Lovers. City Lovers.